welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series, the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. I am Scott Miller, and I am privileged to serve as your ongoing host and interviewer. I am also the author of the new, new recent number one Amazon new release, Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds that features guests on the On Leadership podcast. And I dedicated a chapter to 30 of our first guests and a transformative insight that each of them shared. Pick up a copy on Amazon or any book retailer. And I've just now completed the manuscript for Master Mentors Volume 2 featuring 30 new guests. And I hope that perhaps today our guests might be agreed to be featured in a future chapter. Martin Lindstrom is one of my all-time favorite icons. I have been um, idolizing his neuroscience marketing background. He is the author of the amazing book, Biology. He's a world-renowned brand and culture expert. His new book called The Ministry of Common Sense is out, and typically he lives in Australia. He is currently joining us from Switzerland. Martin Lindstrom, welcome to On Leadership. Oh, thank you, Scott. And listen, I'm so sad to realize I'm guest number 31, which means I did not make it into your first book. So I'm definitely lining up for your second book. Well, the fact of the matter is your guest number about 180. I didn't want to break it to you, but uh, I would be honored if you would appear in the third volume. Can I have that commitment on camera? <laughs> you can. Awesome. That's a commitment. Awesome. <laughs> Let me give our audience a bit of background from my vantage point, and I'd like you to actually give it from yours as well. Martin, I have been a raving fan of yours, a consumer of your insights, your information for decades. I first learned of you about 15 years ago when you were one of the speakers at the World Business Forum, the annual event in New York City, where our CEO, Franklin Covey, has invested in our top leadership team attending nearly every year for the last 20 years. I mentioned that of the conclave of CEOs and best-selling authors and world-renowned chess players and prime ministers, you are the first person that I ever noticed that not only came out from behind the podium, but you came down into the audience to demonstrate emotionally, mentally, physically, viscerally what it was like to connect with customers. You were there to speak about your famous book, Biology. You've gone on to become a world-renowned consultant and expert on all things marketing, brand, customer connection, creating congruence with your customer experience, and I've been a fan of yours for decades. Martin, would you also take a few minutes and fill in the gaps? You have a fascinating background. You're a, ba a Dane by birth. You are an international global citizen and consultant by choice and earned expertise. Take a few minutes and walk us through your journey for all of our millions of listeners and viewers today. Scott, you are so kind and I really am blossing right now. If you could see the color grade on my screen right now, you'll notice that's the same color as that bar you have down there with my name on. Listen, um, it's very simple. Uh, I actually began my story when I was 11 years of age, I think it was, where I was a huge fan of Lego and I developed my own Legoland in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden. And this was serious stuff. It took me one year to develop it. And guess what happened? I opened the doors to this new Legoland and only two people showed up, my mom and my dad, which really was the lowest point of my career. So I went to a local print office. I persuaded them to sponsor an ad. And two days later, I had 131 visitors. It's just one problem. Visitor number 131 and visitor number 130 were the lawyers from Lego suing me. They said it was their brand. I said, no, I bought my boxes. It's my brand. 
Now, the owner of Lego heard about it and he took his little car, because Lego and Denmark is the same, and he drew to my place and he said to me, hey, why don't you come and work for us as an intern? And that's a little bit like God arriving. <laughs> so, of course, I said yes. And uh, later on, many years later, I asked the guys at Lego, why did you actually have me join Lego? And they said, listen, we had lost contact with the customers. So we wanted to reconnect with them and you were our core customer. And that really has stayed with me for the rest of my life. So I'm all about connecting companies and customers and building brands and cultures matching it. Martin, fascinating story. In fact, you had a bit of an unconventional childhood. Talk about the experience with the boat and your parents and how that led to what I would guess is a bit of an insatiable curiosity and perhaps even maybe an uncommon sense of not, of not being fearful of much. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, um, my dad, he was under a tremendous amount of stress. He worked in a larger corporation. Uh, he was, you know, he felt really bad about things. He came home every night, I remember, with gray hair and a gray face. And at one point, I remember he summoned me and my mom, I'm a lonely child. And uh, he said to, uh, said to me, so what should I do? And I had a bright idea. My idea was quit working. I mean, why would you stay there, right? Now, I know it was not that easy, but my dad was a good guy. So he took a napkin, he handed over the napkin, and he said, no, we'll do a contract. So I wrote up a contract to my dad that we'll take two years off and sail around the world on a boat. And the only commitment I had to give back was I had to earn money for the food. Now, any parent today will say, well, that's horrible parents. But actually, it was the best thing happening for me because I then reached back to Lego and I actually had them sponsor um, my trip. So I had a lot of Lego bricks. I created small Lego men. And literally what happened was that for every port we went to, every harbor we arrived in, I would sell these small Lego men and earn money for the food as we were selling around the, the world. So I connected with cultures, I connected with people. And of course, I felt like a CEO at the age of, I don't know what, very young. So uh, that was really my beginning. And I think at the end of the day, what it taught me was um, the ability to not be afraid of connecting people, not be afraid of integrating yourself with other people, respecting other cultures, respecting people, and, and be creative, entertaining yourself as a kid on board a boat alone for two years. So, yeah, it was all worth it. Uh, hard for me to relate to, but very inspiring. Martin, you are, by most people's assessment, the world's leading thought leader expert on neuromarketing, on the reasons behind why people buy, which are sometimes counterintuitive. You've spent a lot of your recent years talking about and researching culture and congruency inside culture and why organizations do what they do and where are the points of hijack by employees. Today, I'm going to toggle back and forth between your seminal book, Biology, and your most recent book, well-named The Ministry of Common Sense. I think part of what makes you so influential is your ability to tell stories, relatable stories that all of us can find ourselves into, much like, I think, Seth Godin, a friend of mine who has that superpower. One of the stories that you talk about is your experience inside of a hotel room with the remote control that anybody who's ever traveled has had an intimate experience. And of course, you back into that with a serendipitous plane ride. Would you take as much time as you need, tell both parts of those stories, and what are the lessons that 
Anybody inside of an organization that has responsibility for marketing, communication, sales, product innovation, research, customer experience, user experience, it can go on and on and on. Share the stories and what's the big insight? Absolutely, Scott. I mean, my story began, I think it was three years ago, I checked into a hotel in Miami and um, there I was wanting to watch television. So I grabbed my remote control and I actually stole it later on. I paid the, I paid the hotel for it, by the way. And it looks like a, a rocket ship. I'm not sure if it's ready to take off, but almost, because it has two on buttons. I'm not sure how it works. If you press the first one, the television is on, and the second one is over supernatural on. So I clicked away, managed to switch on the television after about five minutes. And uh, then I watched television and I wanted to switch it off. And I couldn't, I'm not kidding, Scott, I could not switch off the television because the first off button, there was two, the first off button dimmed the light in the room in a kind of a moody, sexy way. And when I clicked the second off button, guess what, the air conditioning system and the minibar switched off, but my television was still running, right? So of course, furious at that point, I crawled under the bed with my butt in the air, unplugged all of this stuff, and that really is my story, except there's a part two to this story. <laughs> that happens about a month later as I was sitting on the plane to, to JFK. And I sat next to this guy and we talked back and forth. And at some point, now I asked him where he's from. And he says, well, I'm from a small company you probably never heard about. I said, well, share with me. And guess what? The name he's saying is the name of that stupid remote control. And I'm saying to him, what the f went wrong with you guys? And of course, this guy, he looks like me, like a deer in the headlight, completely baffled about this passenger sitting next to him, right? No, abusing him. So he's saying, what do you mean? I said, well, it's impossible to use your product. What went wrong? And he says to me, listen, we actually had a problem internally. In the old days, we had problems with the real estate. This is called real estate. We had the Netflix department, we had the TV area, we had the recording function, we had the TV, we had the radio function, the music, all that stuff. And each of those departments had all their different buttons they wanted to put on this remote control. And of course, they didn't have enough space. So they managed to separate this into zones. So there would be one zone which was only TV and another one. And I said, yeah, but there's just one problem here. You have three numerical keyboards on this remote control. He said, hold on, hold on. We had no conflicts whatsoever. It's been a smooth ride ever since. Everyone has what they want to have. And I said, except one thing, I don't know how to switch off your television. And this is really my point, because what I tend to say is that this is a little bit like a crack in the bridge, metaphorically speaking. I mean, if you have a company and you envision this as a big bridge, when you see this little crack on the side of the bridge, you know the foundation of that bridge is starting to collapse, slowly collapse. And what I've learned over the years is that when you look at the remote control, it actually illustrates or exemplifies a much bigger problem internally in the culture 
a disconnect with the customers, a disconnect between the employees and the real world. And with that comes a lot of bureaucracy, lack of common sense. And with that, it becomes just a very contrived company. So in the end of the day, the remote control is a really good indication of what you and I are experiencing every day of frustrations where companies have lost the contact with who's paying the bill. It's happened to be the customers. Martin, it probably is one of the best both metaphorical and literal descriptions I've ever heard about allowing an organization to have everybody their share of the, quote, real estate, as you call it, on the remote. And they're thinking we've succeeded because everybody has harmony and congruency. We've all got our spots. We all have a, our share of our face to the customer. And you're saying, yeah, but you forgot one person, the customer. And I think it's such an impactful illustration for anybody who's leading product development or marketing or sales to recognize, you know, it's the customer stupid, right? Are you, are you so focused on your internal fiefdoms and silos and EBITDA and profit and all of that that you lose track of the customer? In fact, I would really argue that the premise behind the Ministry of Common Sense is always putting the customer first. We're going to talk more about that. I want you to share another story. It's a similar, it's a different story, but a similar outcome. And that is your experience entering a hotel room. Because in hilarious fashion, you describe the experience every one of us has had when we've flown internationally. And would you just create that with the same level of animation, but truth, <laughs> what it's like to enter a hotel room and how some, some um, hoteliers are getting it right? Yeah, well, why don't I just wind back just a couple of hours before I walk into this hotel room because just the other day I was sitting on a plane and as I boarded the plane, they've now invented a whole new format of entertainment system, which is brilliant. This entertainment system is called a contact tracing form. It's a wonderful tool. And what happened is that I had to fill out this form. Uh, the problem was uh, that there was no pen on board because people don't have pens anymore. They have iPads, right? So this brilliant guy sitting ahead on row one borrows a pen from the purser. And this pen is now walking down the entire plane, landing in my finger, where the first question is, have you touched anything someone else have touched within the last <laughs> 12 hours? I ticked yes. The second question, by the way, was, have you been in close proximity with anyone you don't know over the last couple of hours? And the only thing I just had to do was to look at his phone number and put it on my contact tracing form. I mean, the lack of common sense continues through the whole thing as you onboard this or disembark from this plane, which is really clever because what they do is that they take one row at a time. You don't want to infect other people. I get it. I respect it. There's just one problem. As you walk down the staircase, you now enter into Jaws. Remember the movie Jaws with this big gap? You go straight into a bus. And then we are packed like sardines into a can, 136 passengers with zero proximity. In fact, there's so little proximity that the sign saying you have to keep a distance of six feet with any passenger is hidden between all these people, right? <laughs> and this is, this is the reality of the world now where common sense has completely left planet Earth. And there is no exception with hotel rooms. I mean, you check into this hotel room and this linen has been stretched out on the bed like you're living in the military. And you sort of slide yourself under this thing. And you're sitting there. And if you at some point are trying to move, 
give it up. And then, by the way, if you decide that you want to take a shower or you want to go to the bathroom, these brilliant architects that decided to put not the toilet paper roll just next to you. No, behind you. So you become this just mastic trying to get this thing here. Right. And, 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 and then, of course, the shower is they're so smart to put the shower head in the wrong direction. So when you open the shower curtain, you put on the cold water and you are seriously awake. Design principles and putting yourself into the customer's shoes has left planet Earth. And it's left planet Earth because what happens is we sit in our small little offices or even worse, we sit at home on our bed trying to pretend like we are in close proximity with the customer. And in fact, I had to remind you, the world has changed profoundly over the last 18 months. That means the consumer is not the same as they were just 18 months ago. Yet we believe we can look at the consumer and understand the consumer based on numbers. We can't. And that is the problem with design, with the way you develop services and products, the way you interact with the customer. It happens everywhere. And the problem is we become numb. We can't even see it in the end of the day because we drink off the company Kool-Aid, which blinds us and we're now part of another tribe where it's accessible to create painful experiences for the consumer because we always done it. Martin, I'm guessing there are uh, tens of thousands of C-level leaders right now that are both chuckling and taking a little bit of offense. Well, not me, but I'm sure that's the way it happens with, you know, my credit card company or someone else. In fact, why don't you take it a step further and recreate the story of where you were consulting with a credit card company and you were trying to get the senior leaders to show greater empathy on what it was like to be one of their customers and how you led them into a perhaps uh, intentional intervention. Well, Scott, you gave me a little keyword here, and the word is empathy. Empathy, remember, is the ability to put ourselves in the shoes of a customer and feel what the customer is feeling. Remember, there's a huge difference between sympathy and empathy. In fact, all studies are now showing that empathy is down 48.5% according to the University of Michigan. And that was prior to COVID-19. Our claim is even worse now. So empathy is really the key. And why is it so important for all of you guys to be aware of that? Because if you want to convince an immune system, remember that's the organization and its defense mechanism for change, then you have to use the power of empathy. Because if you try to use other tools, people will always criticize them. Not enough numbers, it's not serious enough, did we talk to the right target group? All these excuses. But if I feel the pain myself, I kind of feel I can relate to another person. And, and a good example of that is, is this credit card company where they had a horrible customer service and there was no way I could convince senior management about it. It was just like they were set in stone. So one day I did something which you're not allowed to do and don't try to imitate this. I spoke to the uh, executive assistant to the CEO of this huge credit card company and I said to him, listen, I would love to get a special permission to do a little bit of a trick with some of your employees. Um, I would love to block their credit cards, but only when I tell you. And he was, no, he was, he was game. So he said, absolutely, you run with it, special permission, this is for an experiment. So as we are setting up this fake dinner where the CEO is now waiting, and this is a big guy. I mean, this company has 600,000 staff. So it's a serious guy waiting there. And we have the executive management coming in the car 
and I'm sitting in this car. This is a taxi. And as we arrive to the restaurant, we're exactly on time. One of the executives pulls out his very well-known credit card, gives it to the driver. Another guy is saying, do you want me to take it? No, I'll take it. You know, this polite stuff, right? So the taxi driver slides it through, types in the numbers, and it's rejected. And of course, he's convinced that it's no, the driver, so he abuses him, he gives it another chance, it's still rejected. He pulls another credit card. At this stage, another guy is really friendly, so he says, I have a card if you can't afford to drive in a cab. Anyway, <laughs> he tries one more time, it's rejected. This guy gets furious. So he jumps on the phone and he goes to the call center. And this is one of these call centers where they decided to run a greatest hits for the last 20 years which are really summarizing all the music you've had on planet earth in elevators and they're running this greatest hit for about 10 minutes of course at this stage this guy had tried to go through all sorts of different back doors nothing works so the other guy does the same is rejected freaks out he's now on the phone at that stage he has to go through five different levels of numbers and this call by the way is recorded for quality assurances in case you want to use it for later on now, I say to this team of five people sitting in this mini bus, I say to them, hey guys, I, um, I probably will go in and talk to the CEO and you can sort of fix this. Is that okay? So I'll leave. And after about 20 minutes, they come into this dinner furious. You can really feel the upset. And the first thing the CEO is saying to them is, what, what, what's going on? Well, we couldn't, I don't know, there's some stupid stuff going on, they're saying. And then he says, how did it feel like? How does it feel like? He says, I am so angry, I can't even be my own body. One guy is saying, and he says, and that's how your customer is feeling. Because we did a replication of exactly what they're experiencing whenever their card is stolen, or it doesn't work for some odd reason, or whether you are misunderstanding something. This is how our customers feel. We had to change it. And what was so interesting was, at that moment, they got it. We didn't need to have a research study with 15,000 people saying the same. The feeling, the empathy did the trick. Martin, it's riveting to hear how you approach a lot of your clients, kind of shock them out of perhaps their hubris, right? Or being ensconced in their offices or, as you say now, kind of in our homes for the last 24 months. You really are an evangelist around helping organizations realize they need to get out and see their customers really reacting, interacting with their products, not just, yeah. not just fake focus groups or controlled, controlled situations. Is there another story you might share on the power of motivating leaders to move outside of their comfort zone and see their real customer in real time interacting in real life with their product or their service? Absolutely. I mean, I have so many stories. Uh, stories is not even funny. I mean, over the last 15 years, I spent time in more than 3,000 consumer homes across close to 100 different countries, either living in the homes or visiting them. And every single time, I always bring my clients with, with me because then you exchange a sense of empathy. And I'll tell you about one story from Italy. Uh, so one of the largest, if not the largest pharma company in the world within the respiratory disease category called Chiese reached out to us um, a couple of years ago and said to us that they wanted to get closer to the patients and the customers. And I said, wonderful. And the first question I asked them was, of course, when did you last spend time with the patients? And their answer was 
Cyril, I said, you've been around for nearly 100 years and you never spent time with it. Well, compliance. And, you know, you hear those excuses quite a lot. So you know how to navigate this. I've, I've written a whole book about this topic of how to navigate all these issues. So we managed to navigate it. We go into a home of a 20-year-old lady. It's a wonderful story. It's a true story. And I'm sitting there with her and she had asthma her entire life. And I remember I asked her this profound question, how did it feel to have asthma when you were a child? And she starts to cry. And you can really feel she's very impacted by this question because she tells me this story about how she was teased in school, she had no friends, um, she was ditched from parties. Um, they said, and this is me quoting her, I was a disgrace for human mankind. I mean, she was nine years old. So I asked her another question. I said to her, listen, it looks like you've gained your self-confidence. Now, what has changed since then? And then she does something really remarkable. She goes down in her bag and she pulls out a straw. And she says, this is my secret. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, listen, whenever I meet new people, I always give them a straw and I ask them to hold themselves for the north and breathe through the straw for one minute. And then we exchange a sense of empathy. Now I took that idea and I shared it with the board of the company. I had everyone at the board level put a straw in their mouth, breathe through the, the mouth for a minute. And after about 35 seconds, one executive spits out the straw. He said, this is ridiculous. No one can live like this. Why are we doing this? I said to him, listen, because this is how your patients feel every minute of the entire life and they're paying your salary. And if you could hear a penny drop on the floor, you would heard it. But what it did was to create a ripple effect internally in the organization. Today, when people are employed at the company, they get an empathy kit. They open a box, there's a store, there's other tools so they can feel how an asthma patient feels like. Marketing is working with that point of view as well. They work with empathy now. We actually select staff based on their empathy degrees. And we look into how do we communicate with healthcare providers and arm them with tools so they can infuse empathy into how they interact with their patients. And this whole story began with the straw because that straw helped to exchange a sense of empathy. And I think that's really the point here. You can run a lot of studies but in the end of the day, there's a big difference between what I call small data and big data. Small data is seemingly insignificant observations you make in people's lives. That is my straw story. Big data is all about correlation. The problem with big data is that big data very quickly concludes something wrong. Like, and this is a true conclusion, the more umbrellas you sell, the more it rains. Because it lacks the hypothesis it lacks the causation, the reason why. So small data is all about causation, big data is all about correlation. Companies today are obsessed with big data, with correlation, because it's safe to say I have billions of data points. The problem is the more we become addicted to that, the more we actually slowly are drifting away from what matters, which is the customer, right, and the consumer, because they have feelings and they are not captured through the big data. Martin, to that point, what is your prognostication on the benefits and perhaps dangers that AI 
and machine learning is going to introduce into the customer relationship. You write in the book about how there are certain call centers that have certain emojis or icons that come up based on what the computer thinks the client service rep is or isn't doing in terms of the tone of their voice. What, 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 are you, what are you excited about and perhaps concerned about in terms of where we're headed with perhaps big data and KPIs and machine learning around helping or perhaps diminishing this role that empathy plays in customer connection? Scott, the problem is we are fundamentally lazy. If we can find a, a shortcut to something, we will do it. And the problem is that AI is not developed enough to be able to be lazy yet. Yes, you can use it in certain instances, but I don't need to say more than Facebook. We all know what I mean, that the algorithms which are getting their own life are simply not sophisticated enough because it requires an enormous amount of machine learning to get to that point. We're simply not there. Remember, an instinct is an accumulation of experiences through many years of, of life. That's the reason why you and I have an instinct. We may not be able to connect the dots, but we feel uh, a certain direction is right. An instinct is also what AI is developing. It's just called something else. But we've used a whole lifetime to learn. AI has been around for 10 plus years. So it's really dangerous to go into that space and replace it with customer service. So first of all, my philosophy is, if everyone is going that way, go that way. My dad always said, if you want to get ahead of the leader, don't follow the leader's tracks in the snow, go the opposite way. So as everyone is doing their AI stuff, it's fine. You can use it to some extent, but don't let that become the definition of your customer service because then you lose that human connection. And I want to give you one example of that. So. Let me pick one of our clients, which is Maersk. Maersk is the largest shipping company in the world. They sit on one quarter of all shipping in the entire world. So Scott, if you look around in your office right now, one quarter of all the stuff there has been transported by Maersk. They are so profound that they invented the container. That's these guys. Anyway, they come to us and they say, hey, we want to get closer to the customer. You know the drill. We start to travel around the world. It's the first time ever Maersk has done this. We end up in, in China, in Shanghai, and there I'm sitting at this huge call center and listening to all these calls using an interpreter. And one point I, I really get confused because they get so many complaints and it's like, why don't you do anything about it? So I'm listening to the calls and I realize that almost every single customer complaint is categorized as force majeure. Now you and I know what force majeure is, earthquakes, COVID-19, but it's not every single call for God's sake. So I start to work with people in the call center and I realize the reason why is very simple. They actually are measured based on time. How quickly can you turn around the call? That's their KPIs. They're not measured on customer satisfaction. So if they're measured on time, they actually tick the box saying force monsieur because you only have to fill out one, one page rather than three pages if it's something else. And that really gives you an example about the disconnect we have. And just to continue with that story, here's the issue if you put this into perspective. Let me just recap the Maersk story in a bigger perspective. Now, the problem with companies today and KPIs is this. In the good old days, you would have, let's say, a line which is defining, I have a customer going from A to B, and you have two different ways of measuring the success. Happy customer, earning money. Super simple. Then what happened was that suddenly things changed. What changed was that 
Wall Street came out. And Wall Street, they wanted to measure the impact because then they could sell this data to potential investors, which had an insight about if they should buy shares in that company or not. So suddenly the KPI, the one big gigantic KPI was dissected into smaller KPIs. And that worked pretty well because the silver lining through all this stuff was still the customer. We had the customer service in the, in, in, in the past and it still was ingrained into the DNA of the company. Fantastic. But then something unusual happened. And that happened around in the 90s, the late 90s. And what happened was that suddenly when you look at these errors, they actually became small ecosystems running their own little show. Each of those, of course, are representing departments, functions, divisions, and each of them are different KPIs. Suddenly there was different KPIs for different departments in the company, which is super tricky because if you want to have a customer service, you want to have one KPI, which is happy customers. But if one department like in Maersk was measured on time, another one on operation and third one on NPS, then you can't align the whole organization and the culture starts to fall apart. And this map you have on the far right is really the reality of companies today. Divisions and functions are not working together anymore. And what happens is each of them are trying to justify their existence. So as a consequence of that, what we're ending up with is of course a disaligned organization where they're more busy dealing with themselves than actually dealing with the customer. In fact, Martin, take that a step further because I think it's safe to say for, gosh, you know, two, three decades, you have built this reputation as a world-renowned authority on brand marketing, neuromarketing. And the more you have met with organizations and understand their ecosystems and their cultures, you've really developed a practical expertise in just that, organizational culture. In this current book, The Ministry of Common Sense, you write that it's important to understand who are the sneakiest political players in organizations and how are they helping or hurting a sense of synergy, if you will, and uh, not creating you know, uh, real estate or territory on the proverbial remote control. What have you learned about what the best companies do when it comes to figuring out what is the culture of the most influential leaders for good or for bad? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I, there's two things I want to say. I can talk about this forever. I don't need to tell you, but there's two things I want to say. First of all, I always look at the organization and the employees as a, a chess game, a wonderful chess game. I love people. I love interacting with people. But when you are dealing with a company where transformation is on the agenda, you also need to figure out what players are really willing to change and which one will hold back transformation. So I always look at those folks as chess bricks. And each chess brick, of course, have a function. You go two step ahead and one to the right, or you go across, or whatever function you have on the chessboard. But I always see it in a different light. I always disguise it in my mind. I say, well, that person, that chess player, that if it's the king or the queen, is that disguised as something else? So I think this is that person with that function, but actually the chess brick is doing something different. So in my mind, I always try to separate what people's real roles are and what their real influence are in the organization because there's a huge difference between those two factors. And typically you don't find out straight away. Now that leads me to the second thing. This is all about engaging people. Transformation is all about engaging people. and. A good friend of mine and a person I admire deeply is Alan Molly. Alan Molly, the former CEO of Ford and Boeing, voted the 
I think the top CEO of a decade by the Chief Executive magazine, um, you know, have a trick he used in Ford and which really helped to turn around the organization. What he said was, building on what we've been talking about now, is you have to measure people and reward them in a different way. What he does is this. He actually give people three different scores. The first score, let's say it's out of two, maximum two, zero is the lowest. And he's measuring, of course, their personal performance. Fantastic, you get a score of two. The second thing he does is he gives them a score based on how well the company has done. Done really well, score of two, fantastic. Now you actually can have quite a lot of you know, points going into your pocket at this stage, except there's a little detail. Because the third thing he works with is that he actually um, multiplies that with a score of two. And that score of two is your ability to collaborate and work with other functions, other people, other divisions in your company. If you're really good, you get a score of two. I mean, that means that you get a score of eight. If you're really bad, you get a score of zero. Zero times zero equals zero. And this is and was his philosophy at Ford, helping, among others, to turn around Ford. This is missing today. We are not rewarding people on the ability to collaborate, to work and help other people to grow. We only reward people mainly on factors which are very short term and which is almost always something which you can measure within your department. And that is the problem you have. So that would probably be my quick advice. There's a lot of other advice I can give, of course, but I think the key to all this stuff is start with collaboration because a company and the only benefit a company has is a lot of people can work together. If you don't make people work together, there's no idea with a company. Martin, you didn't know this, but you're really a marriage therapist. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, as I was revisiting biology and reading your new release, the Ministry of Common Sense, I, I came to an epiphany, and that is in my home, I am married uh, about 12 years to my wife, Stephanie, and we have three young sons that are seven, nine, and 11. And uh, when we got married, my wife chose to be a full-time stay-at-home parent, although she is highly educated, and to manage all that is the Miller family, finances and budget and the logistics, that's a big job, of course. And I myself have been a a business leader for 30 plus years. And my wife will often lament to me and complain about a, a customer service situation or a, or a process or a refund process. And I always dismiss her quite, I, and say, son or, or, or Stephanie, there's a reason they do that. There's a, a, I don't know what it is, but there must be uh, a logical explanation because companies don't do things nonsensibly. And I think I owe her a big apology because after I was, I guess I was defending a lot of the stupid things that I thought up that I'm sure many people have complained about over the course of my own career because in your book you talk about, no, we've lost a lot of our common sense and there's a lot of things that are just quite out stupid. And my <laughs> wife, as a savvy consumer and an educated person, was trying to raise the flag on them and even I wouldn't you know, validate her or listen to her. So to my wife, Stephanie, once again, you're smarter than I am and here I acknowledge it in front of millions of people. I Stephanie, it, thank, thank, thank you for that. I'm going to give you a heart straight away because what you're saying no, is, actually, is, is absolutely spot on. She gets an eight, a two and a two times two, right? Or, or two plus two times <laughs> yeah, two. Exactly. Well, uh, listen, here's, here's the issue with, with this whole topic. Um, we become collectively blind. And, and, and the reason why is this. It comes down to, this is really fascinating, Scott. There is a direct correlation between empathy 
and common sense. Remember, empathy is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and feel what that person is feeling. Common sense has two words. One of them is common. Common means seeing the world from a different perspective. That means the more empathy you have, the stronger degree of common sense you have. But here's the issue. When you start in a new company, there's a lot of empathy. One example, two young kids are smoking weeds and they're off their head in the university and they shoot a photo of each other, post it online, parents freak out the day after, they take a photo of themselves and they say to themselves, my God, we should never have done that. I wish we could have changed it. Now, that became the foundation of Snapchat, a $50 billion company. So why was that successful? It was successful because they felt what the audience was feeling. They recruited like-minded people. It became a movement of people which had a shared purpose. Very important. We need a purpose in companies. It's diminishing. We need a purpose in life. It's diminishing. But they had a shared purpose and that became Snapchat, which even said no to Zuckerberg when he wanted to buy them. Now, this is interesting. As the Snapchats of the world are growing bigger, they want to protect themselves. They go on the market. So because of that, they have lawyers, they have compliance, they have all this good stuff coming on board. And all of them create red tape everywhere to protect what they already have. But what happens is, typically the leaders or the founders, they are sidelined. Think about Google. Uh, typically, and Instagram for that sake, typically what happens is that they start to drink of their own Kool-Aid. And this is where empathy is now disappearing to sympathy and even worse. And with that, common sense is flipped to nonsense instead. So the bigger a company becomes, the more nonsense you have. And it happens because you become blind. You simply do not reconnect with the world, which is moving very fast, and you believe your product has eternity. But it doesn't, because you constantly need to recheck into reality and align your culture with the culture of the population. And this is the biggest problem, because people think they can feed it with numbers now. Let's put a lot of numbers on and try to justify that we actually are connected. But the more we do it, the more disconnected we become. I'm very mindful of our time. Would you finish off our conversation with the insights you share about the Heathrow Express? <laughs> yeah, well, well listen, it, it's Heathrow Express is a train which is going from Paddington Station in the UK in London to, to Heathrow, which is the main uh, airport in the UK. And What's fascinating is that this train, which runs, I think it takes 80 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that, is perfect. There's just one thing. I've been traveling there for quite some time until one day they actually want to save money. They decided now we want to have some automated generated stuff. So we are sort of squeezing people through these two locks where they have to show the tickets. And you know how it is. Now, when you are really busy, you know, if I don't get this train, I have to wait for 20 minutes and I'll lose my plane. So when people arrive with these two gates, when the old days you basically just had a person checking the ticket here and there, then people go into panic because there's a long line and the line is really long and the machine is really slow. So they have a security guy keeping an eye that everyone is doing it. In fact, they have two. So here we are. They have two machines now, two security guards. And in the past, I had two people just checking the tickets, but no machines. People freak out so much so that they, after about a week, had to put up huge posters saying, abusing the staff is illegal. It's requiring imprisonment if you continue doing it. Because people were furious. 
what they never thought about was the root cause. The root cause is they never put themselves into the mindset of a traveler, which is in panic, always last minute, and which is afraid of losing that train. No, instead, we put up machines, then we put security guards, and now we put some legal stuff around it to use fear as a tool. And this is symptomatic for where we are today. As the world evolves and we sit behind the screen, believing we can control the entire world through remote control, we are increasingly disconnecting ourselves with the world. So my biggest and most important advice is roll up your sleeves, get into the homes, into the offices of the real people, talk to people and feel what they're feeling, re-establish a sense of empathy, because once you do that, you will recognize something in yourself. And that thing is what's going to drive a, a movement in your company to reconnect with the customers. And it's more needed than ever. Martin Lindstrom, you don't own a phone. I don't own a phone. No, I got rid of the phone uh, nearly five years ago as I had a bet with Ariana Huffington. And, and really, I, I decided to skip the phone because of three reasons. And this is what I've learned in hindsight. The first thing is that people don't see things anymore. Think about it. You go to a bar. Uh, help me here, Scott. Just tell me if I'm right. You go to a bar and you are the person who you're going to meet up with is late. So what do you do? The first thing you do is you, you grab them. your phone. You do anything with the phone so you don't look like a complete loser. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so you feel insecure, right? Totally insecure. Number one. So we don't meet people anymore. We don't see things anymore. Everything is through a screen. I went to a Coldplay concert the other day in London. I don't think there was a single person who ever saw the band. Everyone was <laughs> looking through a lens to put it up on YouTube so they could watch a video later on which everyone else had been shooting as well. So we don't see things anymore. We don't meet people anymore. But here's the worst thing. We never get bored anymore. Yeah. And boredom is the foundation for creativity. It is that pause in our life which helps us to reconnect dots in a completely unconventional way and see the world in a different light. And that is dying. And that's the reason why I decided to skip my phone and I've never been more happy than I am right now. Martin, talk about how someone can engage with your organization. It's super simple. You just go online, you type in my name, Martin Lindstrom, Com, and there you find a website or you can find me on all sorts of different things. So we have, of course, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. There you'll find me. You won't be able to call me, but you can send an email and I'll get back to you. Which is how we got you, sir. Your, your energy is contagious. Your advice is fiercely applicable. The recent book, The Ministry of Common Sense, should be read by everyone that has a leadership role in organizations. I found myself laughing out loud and closing it and thinking, oh, he's talking about me. He's actually talking about me and my arrogance and my lack of connection with customers, which I found, of course, riveting and, um, and worthy of self-awareness. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate you joining us Thank you. on leadership. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Martin Lindstrom now on air, willing to become a featured mentor in the next volume of Master Mentors. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.